Good to see you again, uh, Graham. It's been a little while here. Uh, we're back after this is what, like a week hiatus, I guess. Uh, we had to call off the previous week because of the, the weather. Uh, it was yeah, that's very, a, it was, a first for podcast. Yeah, history, it was right. It was just too hot up here in uh, northern or in Washington, the Pacific Northwest. Um, I believe Calvin had to go out and get a hotel room just so we could have air conditioning for an evening. It was pretty bad. Uh, it's brutal. At, at one point, my internet just stopped. I was in the middle of watching. Wow. I was in the middle of watching a movie and it just stopped. Like it, it wasn't loading anymore and nothing was functioning. Like was it a good movie or was it? Did it save you? In fact. Uh, it, it kind of did save me, actually. I, I bet you'd be interested to tell you about it. I was watching uh, Mr. and Mrs. Smith on the Criterion uh-huh. Channel, the, the Hitchcock movie. Yeah. And it's it's funny. is I found it to be a really enjoyable movie, like really kind of fun, whimsical, humorous, uh, like very unexpectedly from someone like Hitchcock until about the part where it stopped. Then I went back the next day and we watched the rest of it and it turned into this misogynistic, awful thing. <laughs> <laughs> kind of like the conclusion of, of the couple getting back together. It's just like, where the hell did this come from? This is, this is I guess it was an act of God that like, if, <laughs> if your internet ever cuts out due to intense heat wave and you're watching a movie, just stop the movie right there. Yeah. Uh, but that actually sounds like Marnie where the first half of Marnie, I was like, wow, okay, this is like top tier Hitchcock. Amazing. And then that scene happens and the rest of the movie follows. And I'm like, oh my God, like, you you fumbled the ball here really hard. Yeah, I was I was really surprised with how much I was enjoying it. It wasn't like one of the best things ever, but it was it was surprisingly charming and humorous. Like uh, from from Hitchcock, like Robert Montgomery and, and Carol Lombard star in it, and, and Lombard's of course great. She's funny in, in basically everything. Uh, but yeah, I just wasn't happy with the way it, it, it went after the point where I resumed watching. In terms of comedy, would you compare it to? Uh uh shoot what is the comedy hitchcock i'm thinking of are you, are you uh, talking about uh, uh trouble with harry trouble with harry yeah. yeah how would you compare it to that i i wouldn't that's the interesting thing so trouble <laughs> the trouble with harry is like it's super dry humor you know and mm-hmm. it's and it's not that much. this one's more classically screwball humor gotcha going on in mr and mrs smith which is again interesting for hitchcock it's it's not his typical kind of comedy no. but, but it's also interesting what he brings to it as a director his his kind of unique visual sense as well injected into the the world of typical marital screwball comedies it's it's very interesting i i I bet you would enjoy watching it well well you know my life's mission is to eventually watch every single one of his movies um yeah of course i'm now in the like (laughs) phase of his career where i have very few left that i'm actually looking forward to Mm -hmm. in terms of uh his more well-received works but also just finding them in general too that's the hard part like this one uh, i noticed it was incredibly like not very popular on on letterbox and i'm sure it's just because its appearance on the criterion channel is probably the first time it's been widely available to to people for a long time definitely so yeah uh, check it out i guess if you're a hitchcock aficionado and you want to see you know how well it measures it's I, I again, I'd, I'd probably watch it again. I enjoyed the first two thirds of it. <laughs> well, this time you have to start from the second half and then have the power <laughs> go out and then go back and watch the other and see see if that changes things. Changing the order around. I wonder. Yeah. I wonder how many movies we could do that with, and it would improve them in any way. <laughs> <laughs>
Well, it's uh, it's good to have you back here on the podcast, Graham. Thanks for filling in as well. Uh, Calvin is not still in a hotel room, for those wondering. He's he's out in the woods now, uh, camping with his family for the the fourth allegedly. July yeah, uh, maybe he's out there hunting for for more fresh air uh, as well, <laughs> or human meat. That can be it too. <laughs> but I'm, I'm super glad to have you on this week. Uh, I think we got some interesting things to talk about. Uh, I know Definitely. you you you've got uh, something interesting for something you're watching to to tell us. Yeah, about. you want to tell us about that? Mm-hmm. So uh, this past Friday, I went to an outdoor screening of the original Frankenstein in the Congressional Cemetery in Washington, D.C. Um, and the weather was perfect for it. It was a little actually chillier than I was expecting, which is odd because D.C. summers are usually pretty nightmarish, not quite uh, internet melting heat, but pretty bad. But uh, uh, the, <laughs> the screen that they were projecting it on was not uh, quite as large as I oh, was sure. expecting. Um, we got there, we were one of some of the first people there. So we got like pretty up to the front. We didn't want to be those people that got like right in the front row and then block the screen for everyone. But, uh, rest assured, somebody did that for us. Uh, some lady with her hair up in a bun to block like the maximum portion of the screen possible. And gusts of wind would periodically like blow the screen over sort of, um, like all the way over, like did they not quite all the way, but they would distort it significantly. Um, (laughs) Let's see. Let me get all the bad parts out of the way so I can talk about <laughs> what I enjoyed about it. Uh, also, it being D.C. in the summer, there were tons of fireworks and gunshots going off periodically. And uh, the screen would flash red with sirens that would uh, drive by. So uh, it really made an, for an interesting remix of the movie. Um, but that being said, watching Frankenstein in a, in a cemetery at night with uh, bats flying around. Like literally as soon as the movie was starting, bats would start uh, swooping around and you can't really get more perfect as a mood setter for that. And the movie totally holds up for me. I mean, I, especially if you compare it to uh, Dracula, which came out shortly before same year, I believe. Uh, the, The camera work is so much more dynamic and expressive in Frankenstein and like the further you get into the movie, the more impressive the filmmaking gets once you get like the huge mob scenes and uh, all those set pieces. Had it been a little while since you'd seen the film uh, or were you just like, were you super intimate with it already going into this one? No. Yeah. I, I had seen it uh, pretty recently. I think I watched it two years in a row. So maybe I don't think I watched it last year, but the year before I watched it. And then the year before that I watched it and then I had seen it before. So this was probably like my fourth or fifth time seeing the movie. It's, it's but, a nice to, to switch it up with an interesting setting like that and, and getting it projected even on an, an, an ideal screen, I suppose. Yeah. <laughs> you sent me a picture. It looked like it was like an inflatable screen or something. It was an inflated screen. Yeah. <laughs> and it was probably about 10 feet high and a lot of people came too. And so I can't even imagine how the people all the way, like they were like probably like 70 or 80 feet away, maybe more than that. And you just, people just 10 like feet, 10 feet for the screen. Yeah. It's like 10 feet, 10 feet tall. It was not. It's like tiny. It's tiny. And that's, <laughs> that's counting the like borders around it as well. Oh no. <laughs> yeah. And they used a DVD to project, uh, which oh. is actually pretty good in terms of the quality. I was, I was surprised, but uh, yeah, despite the uh, the 
poor projection experience, it is still a fun time. Uh, I would recommend bad. catching it in uh, hopefully better screen, but a similar setting if you can. Mm -hmm. That definitely sounds like a cool experience. Uh, it's been a long time since I've been to a similar like outdoor screening like that. Anything like a, uh, was it like a drive-in or was it just the, you know, people sitting outside? You said there was- No, a, yeah, it was just- yeah. uh, you, you literally are sitting amongst the uh, the headstones and stuff. Oh, okay. And, yeah, and they have uh, they serve dinner and stuff, which uh, was also not as good as I was expecting. <laughs> uh, it was like cold chicken and corn in like a cardboard box that would have gotten all soggy and stuff. And I'm really glad that I didn't go for the shrimp. That's all I can say. Yeah, those boxes <laughs> out there for a while. That, that definitely sounds an idea. When, when you pitch like Frankenstein screening in a cemetery, like on, on paper, you imagine like that's that's the one way to see it. That's great. You know, maybe you get a lightning storm going or something, but definitely like yeah. don't think about all those other circumstances. The, the gunshot. It's also like $35 <laughs> a ticket. So I was, Ooh. you know, for that sort of money, I was expecting a little, a little more, bit better. But yeah. You, I, yeah, I could have put on similar, you know, things like we go rent a screen or buy something inflatable. And, and Absolutely, DVD. yeah. They could have at least given you a Blu-ray quality, you know, yeah. like at, at the least for 35 a ticket. <laughs> but it does it does sound nice still. Uh, yeah, you know, they also were offering on different nights Dracula, the Wolfman, and the Mummy. But uh, obviously, I think Frankenstein is the, the best of those options. It's, I, I think there's there's no question with with my personal experience there. Uh, yeah. it, I've always liked Frankenstein the best out of the, the Universal Monster movies, even more so over the more beloved sequel. Um, yeah, I usually hewed to Bride as being my favorite, but honestly, every over these subsequent rewatches of the original, it's uh, risen a lot in my estimation, and I might have to watch Bride again to compare. It sounds like a good reason to keep going back to to that one and. Uh, you know the series in general. I, I the, the Frankenstein series generally has the best track record, doesn't it? Oh, easily, but yeah. Like the first four movies, I think people generally enjoy them. From there, it's shakier. Yeah, I, I like some of the uh, mashups. They're like obviously not nearly to the like narrative quality of some of the others, but there's some fun appeal, and they have some good expressionist lighting. Um, I like Frankenstein meets the Wolfman at least. The first half speaking of movies that have a good first half because <laughs> it actually works re really well as a sequel to the wolfman and uh, uh is does justice to his character but uh frankenstein or rather frankenstein's monster just it, like after uh karloff leaves the role like every time he shows up with a different actor and none of them come even close to capturing what karloff did with the uh, his performances and he just turns into like a mindless monster that doesn't have a whole lot to do except yell and fight whoever is the, the star does that does that include the uh bell lugosi rendition of yeah. frankenstein mm -hmm. i know there's there's like an interesting transfer point there where like igor like becomes frankenstein or something yeah, the, lines kind uh, of but they but they mucked it up from from my understanding yeah at the end of a uh, ghost of frankenstein which is the fourth movie igor uh, transplants his brain into the monster and then Frankenstein meets the Wolfman. It's Bela as the monster, but I think they didn't, they dubbed over his voice or like took out all his lines. I, I don't quite remember, but uh, I, I think it's just based on my awareness of, of the film is that they cut all his lines, but yeah, they, I think that's what it was. 
but they did it in a poor way in which like you could still see him mouthing the words but no no voices attached which is really really awful (laughs) yeah bela got done dirty Mm -hmm. that's that's a shame but frankenstein the cemetery does sound definitely like a cool experience despite the the price tag and inconveniences there <laughs> makes for a good story here at least a good opener certainly to our... yeah i did it for the podcast <laughs> the things i do mm-hmm. oh that's uh nice to hear usually uh we'd have a, a new movie to talk about here but in calvin's absence uh, i have to provide something interesting and, I, and i've decided to infuse in uh a something new newish i guess it's new still it's still running around uh festivals and stuff with um my my documentary discourse um section that i usually discuss here uh i don't know if you've heard about this one popping around graham do you know about uh hopper wells i do not tell me more okay so this is this is a documentary sort of ish i'm hesitant to call it that because it's it's basically just footage (laughs) um from uh conversation a conversation extended conversation uh that orson wells conducted with dennis hopper on the set of the other side of the wind when they when they filmed that and it's sounds like a very david documentary it absolutely is uh and it's it's i'm tying it in with last week uh which in which i discussed another orson wells documentary that was also compiled of footage from a film we did which was the completion of it's all true uh, when they released that in 93 but uh, Hopper Wells is, is interesting because of the kind of many layers of, of what you're digging at here and, and like kind of chipping away at the personas of each of these titans of, of cinema that you have coming here. Like Dennis Hopper is just coming off of directing Easy Rider. He's in the middle of directing his follow-up, the, the last movie. Wells is, is working on, you know, this big project tackling, you know, uh, and satirizing New Hollywood is hopefully his, his triumphal comeback that never really comes together. You know, and, and they open up the film with a bit of flavor text that kind of acknowledges, oh, yeah, Orson Welles, he, you know, stormed onto the scene in 1941 with his debut, Citizen Kane. And then, you know, uh, they, they posit Dennis Hopper is like the apotheosis of that as well, you know, with Easy Rider coming in and being like the symbol of the counterculture. And it's it's them really kind of going back and forth and, and uh, Wells like prodding Hopper and interviewing him on all manner of topics, uh, starting from like films and filmmaking, going into some of his inspiration and ideas behind making Easy Rider, but also like trying to, to get him to say something, you know, politically about the situation, like Hopper's really dodgy about so many things, but, you know, also kind of like weighing in. I think on, that tracks. Oh, oh yeah. And he, he's like, yeah, there's definitely moments in, in like the back half of it where Wells has basically got him into a corner where he's like not admitting to, to anything and really trying to dodge these questions. But Wells just keeps like putting it back on track. And he's like, no, you're trying to, to change the, the, the situation. You're trying to avoid the question. And Wells is really relentless at getting him uh, on, on record there and trying to get him to, to admit to, to anything. <laughs> but it's a really interesting and, and playful conversation. I think a uh, uh, fascinating look at uh, kind of this deconstruction of, of facade that each, uh, each of them kind of put forward and people in general uh, present, you know, this idea of, of performance in, in any aspect, this idea that they're Definitely. 
adopting a an idea of what they want the other person to see and hear and it's all also done under the banner of this is all footage being shot you know for the movie that Orson Welles is making uh anytime like Hopper addresses him he does so by the 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 director name in the film he calls him Jake throughout it but it's all candid conversation between him and Wells still about Dennis Hopper so there's Uh an interesting layer to that as well like how much of this is also just performance for the film that Orson Wells is making is this leave it to Wells to do something that is like has so many different layers of uh artistic commentary like f is for fake this reminds me of that in a lot of ways it, it definitely felt like that to me watching it and, and this idea that, you know, how much of this is that we're seeing the real person here? How much of this is a performance for the actors? Because the other idea I was I thought about when watching it, I was like, this is not footage that I was ever meant to see. Like this, this was not footage well shot with the intent of showcasing it to an audience. You know, this is footage that was found from, you know, the, the vault, like the, the reels and reels of footage that was recovered from the vault and uh for the other side of the wind that was put together uh it was it was put together by the same editor as well bob morowski but it's by a different distribution company it's not done by netflix which is interesting i have no idea what the right situation there is then how what what, what the film is exactly in its state um but it's it's listed as being directed by orson wells because for all intents and purposes it is it's him behind the camera, you know, and everything and conducting this. And Orson thing. Welles has had a, a prolific couple of years here. Huh? He has, <laughs> he is, he's uh, kind of all over the, the, the place right now. And that, that was the other interesting thing I thought about is like, this is a little old for, uh, or a little like new for, versus uh, when the other side of the wind came out three years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this, this project popping up now, uh, you know, a, couple years later not attached to netflix in any way like the other documentaries they produced for the making of that film so i'm still wondering i'm still waiting for that physical release hopefully this i imagine this would something that would pair perfectly with it and it would go together all in one neat collector's box uh but as long as they get those rights sorted out yeah i'm still waiting to to hear more about that just just tell me (laughs) It's, it's coming just promise me i want like how, how can we have worked so hard to preserve this work and, and finally put it out there just for it to languish online forever? It's, We've got to get know. some other, uh, some mediocre Netflix original movies in the Criterion channel before we can get to the other side of the wind. Yeah. Ugh. Please just put that one together already, Criterion. You've got the deal. <laughs> You've got the project here. I, I, I know there's whispers as well of like Citizen Kane getting a Criterion release I keep hearing about like later mm-hmm. this year maybe. For its 80th anniversary and that would be cool too but i'm i'm less concerned about that yeah, uh, i feel like the next big thing for citizen king is to get a, a 4k which obviously criterion doesn't seem to be in the like i don't know what they could really add in terms of supplements that because the film has gotten so many lavish releases over the years it it has i've got and this thing is that i don't know if i'd buy it right away because i have a really nice like three disc blu-ray set for the the 70th anniversary and it's got, you know, the like the making of documentary that came with it. It's got the uh, HBO movie that they made with Lee Schreiber called uh, RKO 281. Uh, that's on there as well, as well as the movie and all the other features that have ever been released with it. Okay. So, what if they release it, but as an, a bonus feature, they put other side of the wind on it as, <laughs> as a supplement. 
it doesn't get its own release. I, I, I would, I, you know, I think I'd have to protest. I think the film <laughs> d- deserves an actual release. I, I thought it'd be interesting to bring that this film here to discuss as well, because I know, un, unlike Calvin or I, you are not as enthusiastic about The Other Side of the Wind. But yeah, I thought it's not it, my favorite. In fact, I, I mean, I, I don't want to make it sound like I am like some huge opponent of the other side of the wind. I think it's a fascinating movie and some really, really cool editing in it. Um, and I, I think I just need to give it another shot. But uh, out of the Wells movies I've seen, I would probably put it on the bottom. I've seen, I think I've seen almost all of them except uh, The Trial and uh, The Immortal Story now and uh, the film you're discussing here. But does that um, include uh, uh, the, the kind of lesser known noirs, Mr. Arcotton and The Stranger? Yes, I've seen both of those. Ah, okay, yeah. Uh, See, that's I, I like The Stranger quite a bit. Mr. Arkadin was more of a mixed bag for me. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm not as big on The Stranger personally, but the, I think the interesting thing as well is that I, I don't know that I call any of Wells' films bad. Like, you don't have that no, many to pick from. Like, there's, I think there's 13 in total now with the release of The Other Side of the Wind being kind of this the official one here. And like you said, even for, uh, and, and I think it's totally fair that it's like not beloved by by everyone because it is a totally radically different film from yeah. Wells' usuals and something entirely, I would say, un, unfamiliar to any films that we really have even nowadays. It's uh, a beast of its own entirely. And so... I think uh, I'd have to brush up on some of the insider baseball references that the movie is right because it's so much to take in it's definitely a lot and the the film isn't like guiding your hand or necessarily if there are a lot of points it's it's really and and just by nature of its production you know they really just kind of improvised it through with with a basic idea of, of structure and this idea of each character particularly around the the central and that's and and that's the other fascinating component of hopper wells is that you're essentially watching a behind the scenes uh compilation of how they filmed it through this one scene and if if you're aware of the film enough you can catch a few lines from dennis hopper that are actually in the film so this is the footage that wells took from he found the parts he wanted and put them in the film then which, which I think is also then interesting. You know, it's again another facet of this this layer of this film here that we're provided, in that it's 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 a candid conversation, but it's also a piece of a film. And you know, this idea that Wells essentially stitched together all of these candid ideas with this broader structure, with this more elegantly filmed, you know, uh, spectacle that he had going on as well, and and compiled it all into this more or less cohesive project yeah i think the, i think this actually sounds a little more appealing to me than other side of the wind if only because wells is such a uh i mean he's a consummate showman and he's just someone that i love to just watch and listen to him talk like uh i don't know if you've seen the episodes of the dick cavett show or wells as a guest but he, like he's mm-hmm. just so fun to listen to he he absolutely is he's an enrapturing uh you know, personality, and you get to hear that from him. And and I think what's really interesting about this particular one is, is unlike in a case of the interviews with Dick Cavett or whatnot, he's not performing for, for an interviewer and for an audience. It's for like a person and on an interpersonal basis. You know, he's having a conversation with Dennis Hopper. It's not, you know, he's not answering questions. He's pausing the questions, if anything. And it's also interesting to hear him in, in more candid, uh, you know, less uh, restrained kind of public 
you know, profiles. Like he, he's got uh, a few moments where he, he's a little more unforgiving. Like if you've ever read those uh, interview books that like the one he has with Henry Jaglom, uh, where he, he says nasty shit about people. I've seen excerpts. <laughs> yeah. And, and just other interesting things. It's, it's interesting at one point uh, he, he basically is like, Oh, fuck the audience. Yeah. It doesn't, you know, don't, don't, it doesn't matter about them. They're idiots. It's basically what he says at one point and, and hearing him say that is it, it tickled me certainly <laughs> to hear him say that in such a way, because he's usually, again, you think of him as so much more, you know, uh, eloquent, but, and, and, and not that he isn't throughout, but to also hear him to be so crass and brash about things. And they talk about sex in a couple areas, of course, because it's, you know, it's 1970 by that point. And, you know, and those guys knew, knew something about that. Yeah. Subject. Yeah. He insinuates at one point that, that Dennis Hopper might have repressed homosexual desires and, and <laughs> Hopper plays it off and, and tries to act cool about the whole thing. And it's, it's humorous because it's like, does, does Wells actually think that, or is he just trying to instigate something to get Hopper to say something, you know, cause that's absolutely. Knowing Wells, it's probably both. <laughs> yeah. <It's, laughs> so yeah, I definitely recommend uh, checking it out. I think it's just fascinating for anyone. Who's did you say it was streaming somewhere or did you rent it? No, no. <laughs> it's, it's, uh, it's around, it's around. You can find it. Oh, I see. <laughs> it's it's making some festival tours. You might be able to find a screening somewhere, uh, or some other way. I'm not. I don't really know. You could look for it. The Twin Geeks does not endorse any uh, gray zone uh, activities with regards to. Yeah, yeah. Uh, look, watching I, films. The way I saw it officially. was was totally on the level and kosher. Uh, there's there's no need to be concerned about that. But uh, if if you're not worried about that. I, I, I'm sure there's a way. I have no Just idea. Remember, though. piracy is not a victimless crime. <laughs> well, speaking of uh, uh, victimless crimes or crimes in general, uh, is that a smooth transition to, to our subject today? I think it is. Side of the Wind also has a connection to this movie in the form of uh, one of its stars. So that's another transition. That is true. Jack is Houston. True. Yeah. 
who uh and, and honestly between these two roles i kind of tend to think of him almost more as that kind of actor personality than than as a director even though that's obviously his his grander you know forte in in, in filmmaking but mm-hmm. these two these two personalities and roles are just kind of so overwhelming and, and fantastically rendered by by john houston that it's kind of hard not to just associate Absolutely. his personality with that particularly with chinatown because obviously you know we didn't have the other side of the wind you know until very recently but yeah, oh is that was, the movie we're discussing because i watched the two jakes oh <laughs> whoops i actually don't know much about the the two jakes this the sequel i know about it and i know about the how the premise for a potential third film made its way into the who framed roger rabbit script <laughs> which is interesting. yeah that does sort of a uh, work as a chinatown-esque well, the idea was that that they were all three revolved around the the foundational elements of of LA, yeah. you know, structure being you know the the water and oil and uh, highway property, yeah, like like uh, property uh, or, yeah. or land land ownership or whatever it is specifically. Yeah, it's they're they're building freeways in Roger Rabbit, and you know it revolves mm-hmm. around the buying up the companies who who own the areas, who own you know the and, and transportation. That's what it was specifically because it's the uh the car system rail the trolleys whatever they are they don't exist anymore so i i'm not you know uh forced some old relics yeah it's old shit well water soon won't (laughs) exist anymore either so it's true we're losing all that so uh something like chinatown will also be uh, a relic but yeah uh of the three assuming the two jakes is as terrible as it's purported to be yeah actually <laughs> disclaimer i have not seen the two jakes yet i almost let it auto play on amazon and do a back-to-back feature but unfortunately i had uh, stuff to do but it would have been fun to talk about it is it playing on amazon right now uh apparently it said popped up in the corner is playing up next the two jakes Interesting. Like, dare i <laughs> I, I didn't dare That's, that seems interesting to look at like just like I, there's a morbid curiosity jack yeah, Nicholson sure. directed a sequel to chinatown and they got the later and town back back on the script yeah i think initially they wanted polanski to do the the sequel and it was supposed to be done in like the 80s but I don't know. I, I I probably should have prepared and looked more so as to what happened with the sequel, but it, I didn't really care because we're here to talk about the OG. Yeah, I think there's more than enough to talk about because uh, I don't know uh, if our listeners are aware, but Chinatown is a, is a pretty good movie and uh, I think there's a lot to talk about. Absolutely. Uh, a fantastic uh, film, certainly. Uh, one of the best. I'm, I'm, I'm inclined to say for me, it, it kind of encapsulates the spirit and the apex of American 1970s filmmaking that that short window of time where you know uh, the the auteurs had the freedom to just make whatever totally uninhibited by by the studios for the block well apart from some uh, butting of heads with uh, larger than life producers yeah (laughs) yeah the um What's his name? Who he produced this his, and uh, The Godfather? And... I keep getting his name mixed up with Robert Town yeah. because his name is also yeah, I know, Robert. Same here. Robert Evans. There we God, go. God, God, he's a big, big shot producer at Paramount. Directed so much stuff, and we can't remember his fucking name. <laughs> well, goes to show you who who ends up getting the credit for these movies. Well, that's the interesting thing, I think, as well, and how much you can talk about who who kind of is the the auteur that that bad word that i used 
here to describe some of the people here because he he did have such a big hand and of course robert town's script is so integral to to the identity of the film and also you you gotta of course you can't overlook uh polanski's obviously huge you know hand-printed shaping everything here so though we typically as as uh reviewers and observers of films tend to give the majority you know the lion's share of credit to the director for you know basically authoring the entirety of a film it really is a collaborative medium through and through and you can see yeah, and i think so this levels. more than more than any of his other Polanski's other big movies i think this is particularly a, a collaborative success mm-hmm it, it would be, I'm not entirely sure what all pieces you can ascribe to everyone, like who kind of pulled everything together or the production a bit more, I think. Uh, well, the, the ending was entirely Polanski. I don't know if you know what the original ending was, but that was something that they were struggling to fil- to figure out. And I think they actually started filming before they even had an ending and town wanted uh, it to end with um somebody going to jail and I don't remember who now, uh, but it wasn't nearly as bleak as, as what we ended up getting. Polanski was like, no, it's gotta be stark and horrible and just have a, have it end the way it did. Mm-hmm. My, my understanding was, is that Chinatown as a location never figured into the script initially, which is, is very interesting because it's obviously such an important thematic component of the film. And to have everything go down there in the end, uh, I think really wraps things together in a uh, very uh, satisfying bow that kind of brings Jake's whole trajectory into a complete circle. Um, and, and I think that whole component of it, this idea of Chinatown as an entity and a place of identity in Los Angeles as well, is such a key uh, detail of, of the script. Uh, I'm, in, I'm inclined to say detail, but really it's such a strong component of it as well. It's like the, <laughs> the, really the fulcrum of the movie, you know, it works on like historical levels, thematic levels, like symbolically, like the whole aspect of, uh, I mean, the, the big element of Chinatown as an idea of the movie is that like, is that of uh, misunderstandings because you know, and when they worked in Chinatown, there was obviously the language barrier, which then sort of comes up within the movie when he misinterprets glass uh, or grass for glass. And but the whole movie is about Jake misunderstanding pretty much everything up until the end. Of mm-hmm. the, of the movie. It's also this uh, uh, idea this of, of corruption in, as well, I would say. Uh, it symbolizes this idea of being unable to to overcome, you know, the the lack of justice that exists in the world there. So for it to come back to that, and that's where the the things really fall apart, you know, uh, the the symbolism of that really resonates because the whole idea of him getting out of Chinatown originally was to kind of carve a path on his own and get away from the you know corrupt police system or the un, you know d- dysfunctional police system that he was uh, participating in and you know becoming an, an agent of uh, righteousness on on his yeah. own uh, essentially like that's that's the idea of detective work uh, as we can clearly see you know he, he doesn't actually do much just yeah, no, ringing <laughs> and he's uh, he's pretty aware of that given uh how upset he gets at the insinuation of the the uh, mortgage worker in the barber shop that he is doing something less than righteous. Mm-hmm. Essentially, just the majority of his detective work is just 
getting dirty photos of uh, cheating spouses. Which is what we see. In, in, I mean, that's like the very opening of the film uh, with him, you know, going through the pictures and everything. And that's kind of what keeps the plot off in motion. There's a lot of things that happen in the film to a point where no matter how many times I've seen it, like big important plot elements, I seem to just like forget about like the, the character introduced in the beginning uh, coming Curly. back at the end. Yeah, Curly. I, I want to call him Pauly because that's who he is in the Rocky movies. <laughs> He's. I've seen a whole bunch of movies with him recently. Uh, as an aside, Burt Young is his name. And he just has like the perfect face and vibe for these like 70s like crime movies. He's cast a lot as uh, like mafia types. He was in The Gambler and... Uh, was he in, I think he was in Across 110th Street as well. And I just love him so much. He's sort of like a Dennis Franzi uh, yeah. uh, character actor. That's actually is a, a great comparison point. They, they give similar vibes. Uh, Dennis Franz obviously having like the, the like taking that to an extra degree for the 80s. Uh, mm-hmm. that, that kind of uh, sleazy quality of character. He, yeah, I, I think Burt Young is definitely in the same vein you know, but for, for the earlier era yep. and yeah. And, and it kind of sets the stage really well for the events of Chinatown and playing things out, which, and I, I think it's just really hard not to just say that the script is so incredible. The story is so tight. It's so well considered and delivered as well uh, in, in the way that so much information is conveyed about, you know, what happens throughout in a way that almost like is indifferent to whether the audience is aware of what's going on or not. It doesn't spell things out explicitly while also overtly, while still overtly displaying the events as they unfold. So it does it so well because it puts, it uses Jake Giddies as like such a good point of view protagonist. Like we, we really only see what he sees and, the movie makes no effort to explain things to us beyond what it explains to him. So like a good example of that is when he goes to the, uh, the hearing for the proposed dam and you just get this snippet of a, uh, of pretty crucial background information. Cause it explains really what the crux of uh, what is his name? Uh, Mulray's objection to the dam is, but you know, Gettys is just yawning and sort of that also signals to us like, oh, this is just, you know, boring uh, information that isn't necessarily relevant to the task at hand, but is actually quite crucial uh, as you come to know on rewatches. Mm-hmm. Yeah, all of, basically everything that's that's spoken or conveyed and, you know, throughout the script is uh, vital to the events and how they unfold and, and piecing things together. While, while you're watching, maybe on a first watch, you might think someone like Mulray is less important than they are in information about their characters and because they're not really given much weight in, in terms of actually like identifying and recognizing them and, and seeing them as a fully fledged character. And, you know, so when half hour in when they die, uh, it's, they feel more like a plot device, but all of the information that you're given about him preceding that is, is exceedingly uh, important to learning the motivation of things and the larger uh, corruption and conspiracy that's going on that really is is compelling the change in the action uh, that, that we see unfold. Something that I really love about the movie, though, is, you know, it, it's about uncovering this grand conspiracy to uh, 
to push these farmers off their land and, you know, stealing water and then uh, incorporating part of another county into LA. There's this huge conspiracy all about grand power plays. And that's what you think the movie is about. But then ultimately, I don't want to say it's irrelevant, but that's not at all what like any of the like big dramatic swings of the movie have to do with like uh, even the uh, the death of the uh, the water guy Mulray that's his name right Mulray yeah Mulray mm-hmm. it's not even about the uh, objections to the to the plan about the water that was all about the family strife between uh, Cross and his uh, uh, daughter and granddaughter slash daughter yeah and that's that's obviously like the big shocking moment of the film that comes that's uh really what kind of drives things and i think what more so than anything else sets the film apart from the uh classical hollywood film noirs that it's taking so much from uh and and i think and that's the thing that chinatown is the like the very definition of what could be done with the genre in this new era of filmmaking there is a huge boom of neo-noirs in this vein detective stories revived in the 1970s you know uh like chinatown even had people like robert mitchum coming back and making raymond chandler films again in this decade but none quite achieved the same level of uh grandeur and ability to depict what you know the restrictions of the code could only hint at you know through innuendo uh, in the 1940s and 50s, and it doesn't do so at the sacrifice of subtlety and suggestion that made those films so illicit and tantalizing to begin with. It still maintains those qualities while very directly dealing with, you know, more horrific and violent and, you know, sexually charged uh, subject matters, you know, in very literal terms. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it definitely has an edge that the seventies only really the seventies could bring to it. And while still feeling very faithful to the spirit of the, the noir conventions. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. There, you know, uh, Jake Giddis is the kind of prototypical Sam Spade, Humphrey Bogartish character, you know, but through Jack Nicholson's uh, more kind of grounded, realistic portrayal, you know, he's not as overly stylized and, I think he's a character. He doesn't feel as superhuman as someone like like Bogart might come across as certainly, but he gets fucked up in similar ways. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, Sorry, I was gonna say that I like that despite how basically the entire story revolves around the detective failing to understand what he's really dealing with. It never makes him out to be a bad detective, and he's actually a really good detective, and that's why. Uh, he un- uncovers everything. It's just, he shouldn't have uncovered it. It's the whole thing. But I, you know, it, like I loved all the little scenes where they show him doing his uh, little detective tricks, like uh, where he puts the the timepiece under the tire to, so when it leaves, you can see exactly what time they left or uh, ripping out the, the pages yep. with the ruler. With the cough. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Or bashing out the taillight so he can follow uh. There's also well, the, the the bit where he uses the the other water guy's um, business card to get in past the the guards at the other place by posing as him with the business card as his form of yeah. identification. And stuff like that really works in any movie about a professional because it like you can it feels less like some screenwriter has written some 
generic character and more like, oh, like we get to some insight on the tricks of the trade. Like this is actually how a professional would do things. Well, it makes you feel more like the detective and it's those meticulous details that help build. And like I said, it, it makes it seem less like it, the film is outright giving you grand scale reveals because you're getting them on smaller levels because you're picking up small bits of information through this, you know, the, the minutia of the detective work here, the little bits, and they're all s smallly building one on top of another to build to the bigger reveals as we come across them, the turns, you know, and learning about, you know, uh, how certain characters are being more, you know, cagey about certain things than others and learning about things. And even so, there's even more ones that I only, like, like I said earlier, I, I only am now picking up on fifth sixth watch later on like everything involving the glasses uh that, that are at the bottom of the the pond um I, like obviously there's a big reveal with that where he like you know spells out you know he meant grass instead of glass and he you know finds the glasses in there and it kind of piece everything together with the salt water in his lungs but uh who those glasses belong to is another reveal in and of itself and there's a hint about it earlier when you you have um you know, uh, Noah, you know, mentioning that he, he can't see well without his glasses earlier. It's just like a, a kind of offhand remark. And it, it's, it's like a snarky remark, too, is the thing. Uh, and so you don't even consider it as a clue when he first said it in his first meeting with Jake. Yeah. And, and there, yeah, there are about like two dozen small reveals before this, if not more. Like the movie just strings you along into the mystery so well. Like what starts with, uh, small case just builds and builds and builds and halfway through you're like okay we've got i think i see where this movie is going it's got the water conspiracy i get it now he just has to find some way to nail him and you know i feel like a lot of mystery movies that's where they falter you know they you uncover the plot halfway through and then it sort of struggles to maintain interest but here it just gets more and more intriguing and disturbing and this thing it, it goes places where not only are you not expecting them, but you would never dare dream of it going in terms of uh, the, the morbidity of, of things and, and how truly uh, manipulative and uh, malicious, you know, a character like Noah can be. And, and, and I think that's, that's the other interesting thing as well, is that at a certain point, you, you know that he's the villain this this you know obvious character but it's about the the how from there that's figured out and how deep the the web goes you know also how his the his true crime again because going back to it you think that the water conspiracy like the whole water conspiracy is ultimately a red herring because all the things that he could be busted for like are the involve uh the murder of uh mole ray which is about the his relationship with his daughter and that's not at all to do with the water. I mean, the water plot is obviously super important and uh, is thematically resonant, but it's just not what Giddy's focus it's, uh, yeah. should be on. Dramatically, it's not the main focus of the film. There's, again, there's, there's two interconnected plot lines here, conspiracies that we're discovering. And one is meant to be the more dramatic one. And, and that one's given the greater emphasis in things. But obviously, like the the larger scale one is, is almost in like the background, like you said. And I think that's a, a very interesting element of the film that, you know, the the thing we've been discovering more about this whole time and the very detailed, you know, intricate thing is not the the main crux of 
you know, what the film is really about, even though that's obviously a big aspect of it and talking about, you know, the, the power structures at play there, but, you know, dramatically it's more so about this, uh, you know, relationship and, and manipulation and abuse uh, of his daughter and, you know, his, his ultimate, his, his rape of her and then, you know, subsequent mental trauma that that's caused and, you know, how that thrust her into the arms of Mulray kind of to begin with there as we, we figure out and then his uh, heinous scheme to, you know, take his daughter slash granddaughter back from uh, Faye Dunaway's character uh, to him to actually look after it and like, like it's some kind of twisted second chance at parenthood that he has. That you know he's gonna corrupt just as he has everything else. Well, and it's and it's entirely like that that singular selfish you know d- desire as well. This idea that he he feels he can re- redeem himself not because he you know he needs to give her a good childhood or some you know shit, but because you know he perceives his, him having failed with Faye Dunaway's character because she rejected him essentially. Yeah. And what I another thing I love about the. Uh, the dueling plots um, between the water and the families, how they both work together to illustrate Noah Noah as a character. Because in any other mood, have the bad guy have one of those two plots. You know, you either have him be the big political guy that is uh, stealing water from the people, or you have them be like a pervy, messed up uh, family man. But here like the, the depths at which he goes to, like you can, like the family plot is a microcosm of what, how he's treating the world at large. And, you know, you get so much more depth into how corrupt this guy is and what his values are. Certainly. And it also just goes to demonstrate as well, how absolutely brilliant John Houston is as, as Noah. He, he sells that, that kind of like charismatic, you know, uh, titan of you know industry so well while also the the malicious pure evil that kind of compels his character there you find it entirely believable and just in like like little ways about him i like (laughs) one of the more like arbitrary things is i I love how he just doesn't care about how you know giddy's name is pronounced yeah he gets constantly pronounces it wrong but with the pretense that he's trying to to hear oh yes yes mr giddies and then and he just immediately then goes back to gits <laughs> yeah and i think there are few images in film more horrifying to me than when uh he like envelops catherine in the car and covers her eyes and pulls her away like it's just that's like akin to a horror movie where like the monster is revealed and he just pulls her away and then the camera pans over to uh, Jake's stunned expression. And he's like, how, how could this be possible? And you're just like, Oh my God, like this is so horrifying. The ending is so like, it's, it's just so morbid and so fucked up. So cynical, like more than anything I can, I can even recall. There's a lot of like downer endings in movies. Yeah, it's become a, I feel like the seventies downer ending is a bit of a cliche in and of itself, but like Chinatown is, that's how you do it. Like there, I don't think there's any topping that. It just, it, it rips everything out from under you because it's so senseless. Like you could, you could probably have 
thought of another ending that would be in the same vein of letting the the villain win, so to speak, or whatever. But I doubt you could think of something so absolutely heart wrenchingly, you know, awful and and demonstrative of how just how much of a failure the system is because that's a big component of it as well because ultimately like it's at the hands of this inept police you know as well that it it all Mm -hmm. turns into a giant shit show and they they're you know ultimately got to kind of assemble the pieces again or or like they're just trying to get jake out of there because they they fucked it up and though just like the little the little visuals of it besides uh, yeah. you know, across like consuming his uh his granddaughter uh like seeing faye dunaway's head fall back from the steering wheel and there's just this gaping hole where her eye the eye i believe that has the the flaw in it which mm-hmm. i think is some added symbolism um and sort of nightmarish fatalism well, just what and you know, you know, because you've got it's a, it's a great shot as well, where you've got the car already going off in the distance. The guys are shooting at it, and you just you hear the horn, and you know, and you know already <laughs> what what's happened, and you and you can't believe it until you actually get there and you see. And, but and yeah, often what you see isn't quite as disturbing as what you can imagine. But here, the way that they filmed it and show everything is just like they made every, every visual there as horrifying as they could i think mm-hmm. it's it's absolutely ugh, it's, it's 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 hard to put into words exactly and it's so visceral and affecting and, and the way it just undercuts uh, I, I think i saw you you wrote about it earlier and said how it's it's essentially it's even more uh you know uh difficult to to take in because in a way it's it's jake's fault jake has kind of assembled mm-hmm. everyone here in chinatown well, it, yeah the very premise of the movie the whole plot is noah cross uh wants him to find catherine and then at the end of the movie he brings noah cross to catherine so that he he did what uh noah wanted uh and it was basically all his fault and you get uh, the impression through the implied dialogue about his past that he did something similar uh, to this in his time in Chinatown because there was a woman involved that uh, he thought he was helping, but he ended up hurting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's a terrific fatalistic conclusion to a film. That, and again, for, for a genre that's known for fatalistic conclusions to begin with, but this one is certainly impossible to top it takes all of those elements of, of film noirs and kind of just you know beast them up even more for for the time and i don't think anything has come close to, to touching it in terms of all of that you know uh, in the execution of it you know uh from beginning to end in such a flawless uh, certainly not yeah I, I don't i don't think there are any neo-noirs i've seen that uh would threaten chinatown for its title there are obviously a lot of great ones and uh i'm sure i'll explore criterion channel's new uh playlist of neo-noirs for some that i've missed but uh i mean yeah chinatown is unbeatable uh, before we wrap up here should we talk about the the elephant in the room uh sure <laughs> it is it is rather interesting that this film which so uh delicately and and uh rawly captures the trauma of um uh, a a rape 
uh, a, a very visceral rape of someone and an emotionally scarring rape uh, of a woman here is uh, conducted and delivered so uh, majestically by Hollywood's perhaps most infamous rapist. <laughs> yeah. And uh, it's, and you know, Chinatown isn't even unique in his, his uh, filmography for that. Cause uh, a lot of his films are seemingly sympathetic to this very subject. You know, he did Tess, um, he did Repulsion, uh, Rosemary's Baby. Baby. They all, yep. they all deal with this subject and very, uh, very nuancedly, I think maybe, you know, it might be a stretch to say they're feminist movies, but I think they are sympathetic to the women characters that are in them. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's complicated because obviously what we know about Polanski and what his actions are, uh, it's hard to reconcile those two. And, you know, it's, it's particularly interesting in the case of Chinatown because it's, it happens right around here. He flees the country very shortly after Chinatown is is released, uh, I think a couple of years later, and never comes back. Um, but ultimately, you know, dis- despite how, despite how absolutely awful and, and difficult to kind of reconcile that that idea is, even if you want to separate the art from the artist, uh, it's it's not something I think about when I watch the film and see it. Like I don't feel like knowing that informs the the films themselves which is all in and of itself a, a weird thing to consider. Cause like you said, there are films that, that he's made and other evidences that are very sympathetic and, you know, like borderline feminist in their, their representations of these female characters and such and those, these traumas they go through. So it, I guess, again, it's, it's one of those things where, you know, the person isn't, you know, inherently woven into the material, despite how much it feels like it, it adheres to them their personalities or what we know about them uh I, I feel like the film uh here has been kind of like mythologized alongside the crime because of that coincidental overlap i want to say it's just it's very this very unfortunate overlap that they they happen to have in terms yeah. of content I think, here i think what uh these past couple of years with the like me too movement have shown is that you know we, we get these ideas of these artists in our head because of their art. And then when they, you know, they're the ugly truths of their human nature are revealed to us. It's like, how could this be possible? But I mean, I think what we have to remember as important as like movies are and like all the meanings they can have, they're still separate things from the people who make them. And, uh, you know, like I can very easily imagine how now, how like, Polanski could have like blinders on when he's dealing with movies. He's like, Oh, this is a great story. And then totally, you know, act contrary to what those stories represent in his real life. To be fair, he kind of had blinders on about the situation too. I'm pretty sure he doesn't have much guilt or understanding no, about it. He, absolutely not. Like his, his testimony, I think on the matter was basically like, I, I didn't know I was doing anything wrong, which is yeah. incredibly fucked up. <laughs> yeah, no, he, yeah, he, which again, yeah, you get into like, how, how could you not know? Well, like you look at the stuff you've worked on, but you know, people are full of uh, contradictory and conflicting uh, things. So, yeah, it's, it's not one of those things where I feel the need to like explain away any of this. I have no problem no. Con- condemning him as a, as a 
horrible human being for for many of his actions there but it's uh, again like i think just the the nature of the subject of the film here just like it it would feel weird not to mention at least that yeah there's a very kind of important aspect of you know polanski's uh personality his his, uh or his history that kind of plays a key part here in how we talk about the film but not in the sense that it informs anything about the text of the film or, or no, reading I agree of the film. it just it's it it happens that they both they kind of align in the timeline in a way that's uncomfortable and unavoidable to to discuss it would feel weird leaving that on the table and not having mm-hmm. at least mentioned it but that doesn't it doesn't take away from the, the sheer brilliance of the film the the emotional effect it has you know, and and how peerless it is from from so many fronts. I don't think we talked enough about it as a as a directorial effort as well, but it it does feel so seamless and and atmospheric throughout, and also very you know down to earth. You know, while while also uh, oh god, I almost didn't mention Jerry Goldsmith at all. Holy yeah, shit. I was I was gonna bring up the the score. Holy shit! How did I almost forget that? This is one of like my my favorite film scores. It's so mesmerizing so haunting and and Mm -hmm. like it's also got this like bitter like melancholy to it throughout that that trumpet flare is just so beautiful god i'm I'm kicking myself over almost missing that yeah don't worry i was i was gonna bring it up and at the end if uh if you didn't but uh it also sort of contributes to my reading of this as almost like a horror movie because there are times when it's like very uh discomforting with uh it's uh cacophonous sounds there's some really great music stings throughout some some very haunting moments that really play up the the detention of a sequence yeah i don't think your horror reading is off base at all i, I definitely get those vibes at certain moments uh throughout it certainly and the cinematography definitely helps in lots of ways it's not like as overly stylized as like film noirs you generally think of it are it's much more in line with the kind of more gritty quality of of, of 70s filmmaking um, but, but it's still, it has all of those principles and ideals and it, and it really brings them into the fold there for the, the era in a way that even the, the, the litany of other, you know, noir revivals couldn't imagine, you know, matching in, in any films today. I think one, one of the few films I think of that kind of matches the style similarly is like LA Confidential, but I'm also like hesitant to compare because just like on, on every level, it's like. Just a not as good version. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I love L.A. Confidential. I haven't seen it in years, but L.A. Confidential strikes me as more pastiche than Chinatown mm-hmm. in yeah. a way. Yeah. I, uh, there was the, I the the description on the Criterion Channel because it's streaming there as well right now. This is where I watched it. It, it calls. Uh, it says that Chinatown transcends uh, its its past the the pastiche. And I and I and I took a little issue reading that because I'm like mm, that, that kind of reads to me like pastiche is inherently like inferior, which I don't think it is. But at the same time, that that sentiment I think rings true in a lot of ways. And that yeah, yeah it's not like it, it's not bound by the restrictions of. The it's not pastiche. like a just slavish uh, recreation of noir convention for noir convention's sake. It's all these elements work to support the story and just you know it makes sense to tell it through this framework yeah uh, absolutely uh and, and a, i believe is a, a case where robert town 
wanted to just write an original script versus adapting something for like way more that that paramount had offered and yeah didn't they offer him uh uh they wanted him to do uh the great gatsby yes yes that's what it was um but yeah obviously this is i think you know tackles that's such an interesting parallel as well like i think you could tie a lot of the same themes from gatsby here that you see in terms about uh you know, uh, you know, American mindset and, and such, and a lot of the systems in place of, of the elite, obviously not like a one-to-one, but uh, lots of different subject matters. And that's all, I think that ties into all of the kind of the background themes going on with the, the water plot and the, the large scale conspiracy that's happening. There's a, there's a whole lot going on in Chinatown. Yeah, so much so- the, the more you scratch at it, the more details you uncover, like another, something else that I noted in my, letterboxed review uh, that I'm sure you read was uh, that this time I noticed that all the deaths have to do with water and not just like they weren't all drowned obviously but uh, in the reveals of the bodies there's the sound of water like in the the, uh, the morgue you can hear water running or when he finds the body of Ida you can hear a faucet dripping and it just works to make you associate water with death and it takes on this larger than life uh, uh, symbolism as a, as a great detail and again another fantastic subtlety of the film that you just keep discovering more and more things about it that are so meticulously placed that it's it just continues to be astounding to watch it over and over again uh and yeah i, I definitely want to do it again sometime soon yeah. i imagine it's it, it was a few years between since i last saw it so i was surprised with with how much still i had left to discover but i it just makes me look forward to finding more next time this was one of the uh the first movies i was assigned to watch in college in uh, one of my first film classes and i hadn't seen it since then and i remembered loving it but i i actually remembered surprisingly few details about it uh, outside of the big things although i did have a total uh, mandela effect going on with regards to uh, mia farrow's big scene she's terrific in it as well i think we should note um where in the movie she says uh she's my daughter she's my sister but i in my mind i had remembered it that being the reveal of a uh, cross as uh, uh her uh you know the relationship and i in my mind she, she had said he's my father he's my lover oh <laughs> And I, the, the, that memory was so strong. I was like, does that happen later in this scene? Like, did I miss it? Is this a different version? But no. Yeah, very, very different. But yeah, so it, the same sentiment has come across there. And that's yeah. probably, aside from the ending, the scene people most remember. And I think there is something more to say as well about the the nuances of Faye Dunaway's performance as well and the, the secretive nature of... Uh, her her horrible trauma that she's trying to to repress or prevent from from dealing with or admitting, uh, and and in that scene in particular, this hesitance she has to to say or to even understand. I think that's the big thing there is that she ha- doesn't have like a full grasp of this whole idea and situation for herself. And I think that yeah. comes through in the the subtlety of her performance, not necessarily through the dialogue, but through the the her facial you know, articulation or performance there. And then, yeah. Oh, sorry. Uh, Yeah. And then after I finished the movie, I had to like think back to basically everything that happened throughout the movie. Cause I was like, wait, do I understand like what 
she was actually doing in the movie like because like she's so layered in with in terms of like telling lies to jake and stringing him along in different ways and i was like is this just to like confuse the audience but no when you like think about all the pieces like everything is very logical in terms of her very simple desire to like not have uh not sully mulray's name and uh to not have catherine be found Mm -hmm. and i think just again her own like reconciling was age understanding of this and trying to to move on or like just deal with her trauma of it i think that's a very crucial component of the film that might be easy to to overlook for the more uh, histrionic aspects of it yeah she sort of subverts the uh, femme fatale character in a lot of ways because you think, all right, she's lying to our guy. Like, she's up to no good. She's in cahoots somehow. And then it just, like, becomes... She's totally absolved by the end. And then she I mean, Yeah, that, that whole confrontation scene is precipitated by the idea that Jake is certain that he's, he's caught her, that, that, you know, she killed him. Like, that's that comes after the he finds the glasses in the pond and everything, and mm-hmm. she's packing up to, to leave... So, like, the, the film has led you to believe at this point that she she killed her husband for, for some reason. And then that's when you get that that big reveal of information that, that really digs the hole that much deeper. Mm-hmm. Well, I guess we could find more and more details to scratch at and keep talking about. I, I need to make a, <laughs> a chart on my wall with tons of red string connecting different <laughs> points, I think, before I have any other big revelations about Chinatown. Yeah. Um, I do want to yeah. get that uh, fairly recent book though, uh, The Big Goodbye, which is about both about the making of Chinatown and uh, 1970s cinema in general, New Hollywood. Um, I think that was supposed to be pretty good. And this movie certainly wanted me, made me want to uh, dive deeper both into the film and that, that yeah. era. Absolutely. That sounds like a fantastic supplement to this here. Uh, there's so much more to discuss about it, but I think we'll have to go back and, and dig some more for ourselves and find some more discoveries before we... We're going to have to watch The Two Jakes, I think. <laughs> yeah, really that's, that's uh... <laughs> that'll be the next one to to inform here, uh, <laughs> The Two Jakes podcast. Well, in the meantime, <laughs> uh, the, the Twin Geeks will sign off for this week. Thanks so much, uh, Graham, for coming and talking about Chinatown. Of course, thanks for having me. Yep. Uh, thanks everyone for listening this week. Make sure as always to check out our website, thetwingeeks.com for our latest reviews, retrospectives, and features. You can follow us on Twitter as well at the twin geeks. And uh, don't forget to check out our sister video game show, the daydream cast, as well as our uh, ranking the monsters as uh, another show we have going on currently. Uh, leave a review and rating if you can. They're available on all available podcast players. And uh, we'll see you next week for another conversation on classic contemporary cinema. Flown around the world in a plane. I've settled revolutions in Spain. And the North Pole I have charted. Still, I can't get started with you. On the Gulf Coast, I'm under par. When have asked me to starve I've got a house, a show place Still I can't get no place with you Cause you're so supreme 
Thank you. 